uh, in in our center here, and, and the schedules for our events in this premises is on the on your seat, as well as the the uh, speaking series that we do at various universities. So today, it's uh, a great honor for us to be able to welcome Melanie Phillips to give a talk to us here today. Uh, as I think many of you know, Melanie is a, a top award-winning British journalist, author, and broadcaster. She's best known for her columns about political and social issues and, and has written widely for The Guardian, The London Observer, The Sunday Times, and The Daily Mail. She's a regular panelist on the BBC radio show The Moral Maze and appears frequently on the BBC TV Question Time and, Daily, and The Daily Politics Show. And her blog can be found at www.embooks.com. And this has gained political uh, importance and significance around the world. She's well known for her not only her, her columns in the, in the British media, but her uh, analysis of a, the contemporary challenges and, and, and issues of the day. Uh, her best-selling book, she's widely known for a best-selling book called London Stand, uh, which was about the British, the British establishment's capitulation to radical Islamist aggression. This was, followed, this was published in 2006. She followed this with her book called The World Turned Upside Down, which is here. Uh, the Global Battle Over God, Truth, and Power, which is now in paperback. It has a foreword by the well-known uh, author and playwright David Mamet. Um, and this book is on sale outside, and Melanie has agreed to sign copies for anybody who would like to uh, pick one up at a reduced rate after the, after the lecture. Uh, Melanie Phillips spoke for us at ESA before our venue was uh, terminated, and it's a great, really an honor and a pleasure to invite Melanie back for her brave. She was one of the first people to really take on these issues, which I think more and more people are beginning to understand the, uh, the gravity of, this, of the evolving situation. So it's really a privilege to have somebody who's at the forefront of taking on these issues and it continues to be a strong voice of rational, serious analyst, analytical thought on the problems that we confront. Thanks very much indeed, Charles. Um, hello, everybody. Very nice to be here. It's a great honor and privilege uh, to be at ISGA, um, whose work I greatly admire. Um, Charles has made some very kind comments about myself, but uh, I think Charles has been flying this flag with great courage himself for a long time, so I'm sure you're all well aware. And I, for one, am very grateful for uh, the stand he is taking, as well as his uh, personal support. So um, I would like to start by um, hoping this uh, machine is going to work um, and uh, showing you uh, uh, what happened um, in London uh, over Christmas. Um, some of you would have heard me speak yesterday, and I apologize if some of this is already familiar to you. Um, but I think you will find that I'm taking this in a slightly different direction from my remarks yesterday. But this is what happened in London uh, over, over the Christmas holidays. Um, this is a picture of St. James's Church in Piccadilly. Uh, Piccadilly is the centre of London, very well healed. It's a tourist centre. And St. James's Church, as its uh, treat uh, for the Christmas period, uh, constructed, uh, took, took eight months with a great deal of money. Um, constructed a replica, in their own terms, of the wall around Bethlehem. 
Uh, now, those of you who are familiar with the Israeli security uh, barrier will know there is no wall around Bethlehem. Uh, there is a patch of the security barrier which is a high wall, and it is there of necessity because there is a particular problem in terms of Bethlehem's geographical uh, uh, location in terms of um, stopping people from crossing from Bethlehem in order to murder Israelis. Most of the security barrier is not a wall at all. Nevertheless, this is what St. James's Church, Piccadilly, put up round its church, in front of its church. I think it was eight foot high and 60 foot long, something like that. It's a very, very large structure. And people were encouraged to come and uh, 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 write uh, messages on this wall. Uh, most of the messages were messages of prejudice and bigotry and hatred. Uh, some of the messages were rather brave messages, saying this wall saved lives. I don't know whether you can see. Uh, down here it says, never forget Palestine. And up there it says, tear down this wall. And uh, elsewhere I think it said, make hummus not war. Ha ha. Um, and that is the, the spire of the church, a very lovely church, uh, behind this appalling wall. And that's what people in London passing by, tourists, passing innocently by Sul uh, for several days. And during this period, the church also put on uh, about a week of events, all of which were uh, events demonizing and delegitimizing Israel and uh, telling people lies about Israel. Um, an everyday story of what happens in London. So that's rather, that was rather depressing, to put it mildly. Um, but this, of course, is also what happened more recently, as you will well know, and this is a much cheerier story. This was uh, Scarlett Johansson telling Oxfam to go and stick itself and its uh, <laughs> uh, humanitarian endeavors, as she was not going to have anything to do with the boycott, and she resigned from Oxfam uh, before they could actually uh, get rid of her. And that was a great event, because it was the first time that I can remember that a, a well-known iconic personality came from, as it were, out of nowhere. Um, and took the fight to the enemy. Instead of being defensive, uh, she was aggressive. And she basically said, and she didn't say it in terms, but the implication of what she did in resigning as Oxfam's ambassador was to say that Oxfam was actually something with which no decent person should be associated. And since that is what people are trying to do to Israel all the time, to make it a pariah, uh, that was a very wonderful and refreshing thing to happen. Nevertheless, uh, her stand inescapably drew attention to the fact of the Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions um, Initiative, BDS as it's called, and the fact that it exists um, as a kind of madness that I think probably uh, uh, arose from Britain. I think Britain actually exported it. It's been going on in Britain for a number of years. Um, it's uh, uh, spreading now into the United States, um, as you will know. Uh, where the ASA tried to impose a boycott of Israel um, a short while ago. Um, and it is uh, a situation where you have a narrative of lies uh, about Israel which are being promulgated by a range of institutions. Um, universities, uh, churches, trade unions in Britain are pressing continuously for a boycott of Israel, divestment or sanctions, on the grounds that Israel is a serial human rights abuser against the Palestinian Arabs. 
Now, the fact is that individual boycotts um, are actually being beaten back. Um, they aren't actually succeeding. Um, but despite the fact they're being beaten back, they are kind of informally taking place all the time in academia and the arts. There was enormous pressure on entertainers not to go to Israel to perform. In Britain, and I think this is the case here too, uh, university students are marked down if they don't reflect the narrative of Palestinian oppression by Israel. It's axiomatic among progressives uh, that um, Israel is the principal human rights abuser in the region, if not the world. And the BDS movement, which purports to be concerned to end the oppression of the Palestinians in what they call the occupied territories, is nevertheless a movement which promulgates uh, distortions and a political program whose aim, uh, it doesn't uh, take much uh, investigation to discover its true aim, is to bring about the end of Israel altogether. BDS leaders openly and outspokenly oppose a two-state solution, and when they talk about ending the occupation of Palestine, they're referring not to the disputed territories, but to all the land between the Jordan and the sea. Uh, they implacably support the returns, they would call it, of uh, several million descendants of Arabs who left during Israel's War of Independence uh, in 1947. And they reflect a view which is very widespread now among progressive circles in Israel, in, in, in the West, even those who don't support a boycott. And that view is that really and truly it would be better if Israel were to disappear. Not that we want any bloodshed, of course, but we have the wonderful example of how apartheid ended in South Africa without any blood being shed um, and with peace and reconciliation and that's what we want to see in the Middle East, an end to the Jewish state of Israel, an end to the situation where the Jews basically are occupying land which was stolen from the indigenous inhabitants of that land and they don't mean the territories, they mean Israel itself. And so this is now a kind of general view uh, in, in Britain. Now, the good news is that BDS is really not such a success. As I say, the BDS, the, the, the boycott initiatives themselves are being, are being beaten back. And a number of people have now been pointing out that Israel really is too much of an asset to the West. It's too much of an asset to Europe. Europe has a great deal to lose if it boycotts Israel. It's not a one-way uh, traffic in which Israel is taking from Europe. Europe is taking a great deal from Israel. Intelligence and military expertise, high-tech, now increasingly energy. A recent report by an organization in Britain, a think tank in Britain, the Henry Jackson Society, points out that despite all the uproar that took place not so long ago over the European Commission's directives to label Israeli goods from the West Bank so that they shouldn't be uh, sold or bought, the EU's relations with Israel are in fact closer than any time during Europe's, the EU's history. Nearly 30 million euros are involved in bilateral trade. European exports to Israel are growing by roughly 5% a year. Israel is the only non-European country to be included in the framework program, the guiding blueprint for the EU's scientific research, and so on. So, you know, one has to get the boycott movement in proportion. Um, it's in, not, in Israel, not in the EU's interests to go down this BDS road, and they know it. 
But nevertheless, the BDS movement, the real sting of the BDS movement, I think goes beyond the actual boycott because it labels Israel in the public mind as a pariah state. And the other uh, obvious thing is that, 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 that is immediately apparent is that um, the actual human rights abusers in the region and the world get a reasonably free pass. While Israel is being demonized and stigmatized, Syria had to murder tens of thousands of people before anyone took much notice. No one boycotts or wants to boycott China or Iran. Uh, there was supposedly going to be a protest at the Sochi Olympics about gay rights. In fact, that protest, as far as I can see, never actually happened. But gay rights was the only thing that people were protesting about. There was no real pressure to protest about the murder of dissidents or jailing of dissidents or journalists in Russia, the suppression of human rights more generally in Russia. Nobody particularly cares about the suppression of human rights anywhere in the world except for Israel, which is in fact the beacon of human rights in the region. How perverse is this? And people are absolutely bewildered by what is an apparent madness that's taken place in the West, this kind of complete reversal of uh, uh, truth and lies, this irrational uh, demonization of Israel, where the leader of the human, human rights in the region is tarred as the world's principal human rights abuser. Now, a lot of people in our community think that the explanation must be prejudice, it must be anti-Semitism. And you know, there is a strong element of truth in that. There is a very strong element of the old prejudice involved in this. But, and in addition, uh, there is a kind of obsessional malice about this campaign against Israel. I mean, if you think back to the campaigns against apartheid, which were passionate, uh, they were widespread, but they weren't obsessional in this way, and they weren't characterized by malice and lies. So this is a very unusual kind of campaign, and I think it's undoubtedly the case that you can see that this is a manifestation of the old hatred against Jews in New Ghana. But it can't just be that, because, not least because, if you look at the BDS movement, some of the principal leaders of the BDS movement, and indeed the demonization of Israel, are Jews, who it's very hard to say are anti-Semites. And the other strange thing is this. In the demonstrations that take place, or have taken place on the streets of London and elsewhere against American foreign policy and against Israel, you have liberals marching side by side with people uh, from uh, radical Islamic groups uh, who support no rights at all for women, for gays, or for unbelievers. And yet you have progressives marching side by side with people who deny human rights, apparently absolutely comfortable with this association. So there is something very strange going on here. And I think it's important to understand the context of this turning against Israel in this perverse way. Because it's not just a perversity against Israel. If you start to broaden it out, you can see this perversity extends in kind of concentric circles uh, through Western thinking. For example, take Britain, and I think it's also true in elements of American, uh, the American establishment as well. But for years now, since 9-11, uh, when we first all woke up to the Islamic Jihad against the West, 
there has been an absolute refusal by large swathes of the United Kingdom establishment to acknowledge the jihad at all, to acknowledge that it is a religious war. They put it down to everything else apart from a religious war. They say it's to do with grievances, they say it's to do with poverty, they say it's to do with oppression. Religion, nothing to do with it, nothing to do with it. The former head of MI5, the British Security Service, uh, a woman called uh, Eliza Manning and Buller, uh, in her brief lecture not that long ago, attacked the war in Iraq, and in the course of attacking the war in Iraq, she insisted that 9-11 was merely a crime, not an act of war, and different only in scale from any other crime, not in nature, in scale. She said this, I find it difficult, I still find it difficult to accept that the terror attacks were on freedom or democracy, as some have claimed. The young men who committed the crime, she's talking about 9-11, the young men who committed the crime came from countries without democratic rights or freedoms, with no liberty to express their views in open debate, no easy way of changing their rulers, no opportunity for choice, and well aware that the West often supported these autocratic rulers, for them as for many others, an external enemy. This, I believe, was a unifying way of expressing their own frustrations. I mean, this was the head of Britain's security service, a service which fell down on the job, incidentally, in detecting in advance the homegrown jihadists who blew up London tube and buses, boys who were, came from middle-class homes who had university education. And what she's completely ignored is the fact that the United Kingdom was, by 9-11, the West's principal nursery for jihadis. It's where Al-Qaeda was financed. It's where international jihadi terrorism is still financed from. There is a direct line between London and the Hamas. These are people who are being radicalized in Britain. They're very often born in Britain to middle-class homes. They have good education. They go to university and they are radicalized in British universities. So to put it mildly, the former head of MI5 is completely out to lunch on this. How can this be that a member, a prominent member of the British security establishment can get this so wrong? But she is not the only person to get this so wrong. We have had in Britain the surreal experience of an embrace of the Sharia by people like the former Archbishop of Canterbury and various very, very senior judges. Now, Sharia law is where I think the modern world parts company with Islam uh, because Sharia law is fundamentally inimical to democracy. It does not accept any kind of secular authority. The only authority is God. And consequently, it is intrinsically inescapably against democracy and against human rights. There is no accommodation that can be made between Sharia law and Western values. None. One can accommodate Muslims, provided Muslims subscribe to overarching Western values to do with freedom and equality. There is no accommodation with Sharia. And yet you have the former Archbishop of Canterbury saying, there's no problem with Sharia. Sharia courts are a bit like the Jewish Beth Din. I mean, astonishing ignorance. You have principal members of, leading members of the English judiciary saying virtually the same thing. The former Labour 
Prime Minister Gordon Brown announced proudly that London was to become the centre of Islamic banking in the world, and it has become so. There is a price to be paid for that. No one accepts there is a price to be paid for it. Universities and other institutions are increasingly funded by Arab states. Um, everything seems to be basically the state of Qatar. Uh, we have, you know, the Emirates football stadium. We have the Emirates, um, uh, 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 what's it called? Uh, the, 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 um, the um, chairlift, as it were, over the Thames. Um, I mean, hello, Emirates, what, what is this? And we have the church, the Church of England, uh, which, whose previous um, Archbishop of Canterbury embraced Sharia, virtually no mention whatsoever made by the church about the persecution of Christians across the third world. Instead, the Anglican church is not only hostile to Israel, expressed in terms um, absolutely uh, that we are being used by the BDS movement, they are being used by the Church of England, presenting Israel as a serial human rights abuser and presenting Israel as a persecutor of Christians. Israel, the only country in the Middle East where Christians are free to practice their own faith. Demonized by the Church of England, which in addition to demonizing Israel, is increasingly cutting ties with Judaism. In the past, it was, as I understand it, uh, compulsory for trainee priests to be taught Hebrew because Hebrew was the language of the Hebrew Bible which they needed to know to understand their own faith. Jesus was a Jew. Now Hebrew has been basically, it's, it's, it's entirely optional. Most people don't know Hebrew and instead the church would be building bridges with Islam. So you could say uh, I think it's not too fanciful to say that the Church of England has been busy repudiating its Jewish parent while embracing its own assassin. How perverse is this? How self-destructive is this? But any mention of anything that I've just been saying to you is, of course, denounced in Britain as Islamophobia. Any, anyone who tries to draw attention to the threat to the West being posed by the Islamic world in its current manifestation which I believe to be a set of telling people a set of truths, is denounced as a form of bigotry. So telling the truth and defending culture against attack is considered bigotry. It's considered absolutely essential to embrace the culture that is trying to destroy. And we have also um, Jews having this problem as well. Now many Jews now who embrace the Palestinian narrative, which falsely paints Israel as stealing Palestinian land while turning a blind eye to Palestinian Arab promotion of hatred and mass murder. You would think that the more educated uh, the people were, the less the prejudice, but in fact the reverse is the case, because this animus is directly correlated with education and social class. The more educated people are, the more likely they are to be prejudiced and bigoted towards Israel. The less educated they are, the more likely they are to have a basically common-sense attitude towards Israel. And that's partly because the more educated people are, the more idealistic they are. And what we're facing in this madness against Israel is idealism gone mad. It is people who are genuinely concerned with law, international law, upholding standards of justice, uh, uh, um, rescuing people from oppression, 
concerned about poverty, the highest ideals, but instead of understanding that Israel stands for all of that, and the Arabs stand for the opposite, being tyrannical regimes which persecute their own people and keep them ensnared in poverty, these idealists in the West have got it completely the wrong way around. And it is Israel that is demonized. So what is going on here? We can see this perversion of idealism in the cause which defines our age, the cause of human rights. Because I would argue that human rights has become a weapon of war, a weapon of war both in terms of a culture war and a war against Israel. We can see this very clearly in the global army of NGOs committed to human rights, which are committed to demonizing Israel. We see it very clearly in the United Nations, supposedly the world body committed to global peace and justice. And yet, as we know, the UN Human Rights Council, and before that, the UN Commission on Human Rights, an absolute farce dominated by countries which are principal human rights abusers. This is because the UN itself is dominated by tyrannies which cynically use the Western language of human rights to defeat the West. It's used to protect themselves against criticism of the way they uh, subject their own people. But the question is, how are they allowed to get away with it? How is the, why is the West allowing the UN to turn human rights into such a travesty? Why doesn't anyone in the West stand up and say, this is absolutely crazy. We're not having any of this. And the answer is that human rights has itself gone very badly wrong. It's been hijacked and turned into a vehicle for injustice. And I just want to briefly go into some of the reasons uh, for this. Because it's important to understand that this doctrine of universal human rights, which has come to become the kind of cause of causes for the West, these are not fundamental human rights at all. They're not universal at all. They are highly contingent values. It's a highly contingent formula for groups to exercise power over other groups. I would suggest that human rights culture embodies and symbolizes a culture which has turned upon itself. And I just want to spend a few moments talking about human rights to explain what I mean. I want to explain why human rights, why I think human rights has changed its, 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 its nature so dramatically over the years, because it was drafted as a culture, a human rights law was drafted in the wake of the Second World War with the most noble aims to lay down a set of principles to ensure that totalitarianism would never again deface Europe. In the shadow of both fascism and Stalinism, the original aim of human rights, the Human Rights Convention, was to protect the individual from the state, from state power. But as I've said, that various things went wrong with this from the start. First of all, it was the claim that they were universal rights, when they're not universal at all. Almost every right in the convention is balanced against another right. Free speech, balanced against privacy. Family life, balanced against security. So, by definition, one person's rights diminishes another person's rights, and the arbitration of who gets what rights lies in the hand of people called judges. So, and those judges are influenced by their own culture, by their own politics, by their own ideology. So these aren't universal at all. They are simply a set of one values, one set of values trumping another set of values. They're also detached from their context because the context of real fund fundamental human rights is duty. It's not rights. Rights don't exist in a vacuum. 
Rights come from the duty we have to each other. My duty not to kill you means that you have a right to life. If you take away that context of duty, then rights become something very different. Rights turn into wants, and then wants turn into entitlements, and then entitlements turn into demands. And then you have a political process in which demands are made of others, the state, to grant those demands. And so you have a highly politicized system. And it's a system in which, because it depends on people making choices, political ideological choices about rights and behavior, it becomes a vehicle for imposing controls over behavior, a vehicle that's uniquely well-placed to be used to advance what I believe has now happened, which is culture change. What is this culture change? It's happened over many decades, and basically I believe that's what happened, what's happened is this. And this is what has been, this is what human rights is the weapon for imposing. This culture change. It's a culture change in which the West has stopped knowing what it stands for, stopped believing that it needs to defend what it stands for. Instead, the West came to believe it was guilty of the political equivalent of original sin, and started ripping up its culture and empowering its enemies. Education in Britain, and I believe in America too, stopped transmitting a sense of national and Western culture, and instead confirmed many children in their own background stories and propagandized about the evils of empire or Western slavery or other kinds of propaganda. The culture of hyper-individualism gave rise to a radical egalitarianism of lifestyles and values. Everyone's lifestyle was considered equivalent to everyone's other lifestyle. You couldn't criticize anyone's lifestyle because that was discrimination and bigotry. Traditional the traditional family was dismembered by this lifestyle choice. It became a form of bigotry to say that it was generally better for a child who brought up by its own father and mother. You say that in Britain, you take your professional and social life in your hands. Morality was effectively privatized. What is right for me became what is right. All constraints on the individual from the outside, constraints of religion, tradition, cultural taboos, became seen as an illegitimate attack on personal autonomy. My freedom to decide how I want to live and blow the rest of you. Since this doctrine meant all lifestyles were of equal value, it followed that the very notion of a majority culture, a culture which sets norms of behavior, became suspect as innately exclusive, prejudiced, or oppressive. If I have, so I'm setting norms of behavior, then you who don't adhere to those norms are transgressive. That's a form of discrimination. That's a form of prejudice. Everyone's lifestyle is the same. So it became impossible for the majority culture to say, my norms, my values are normative, and those should be upheld. Moral judgments between different lifestyles of behavior became discrimination. Prejudice, the term for discrimination between lifestyles, became the sin that destroyed the moral codes at the heart of Judaism and Christianity that had formed the bedrock of Western civilization. The nation itself became suspect, since the nation was the very embodiment of a majority identity, which by definition treated minorities as lower in the cultural hierarchy. That's what a nation does. It says, 
my values, freedom, equality of women, trump your values where there is no equality of women. That's what a nation does. It has a hierarchy of values. But no, that became illegitimate. You couldn't do that. So the idea of a nation which represents and protects individual citizens on the basis that you all subscribe, you all share to an overarching identity and set of values came to be replaced by interest groups defined by race, religion, ethnicity, gender, or other existential categories, all fighting each other for power over each other, arbitrated by, classically, human rights judges. So the values of the dominant culture have thus been effectively replaced by the perspectives of self-designated victim groups. Democracy became effectively redefined from majority rule among equal citizens to power sharing among ethnic and other interest groups. Multiculturalism became the orthodoxy of the day, along with non-judgmentalism, lifestyle choice. The only taboos were now the expression of normative majority values such as monogamy, heterosexuality, Christianity, or Britishness. Because these were rooted in particulars of a culture, they were, by definition, discriminatory. The only legitimate values were now universal, detached from particulars such as religion, tradition, or nation, and all minorities, all those deemed to be without power, became a victim class to be championed at the expense of the majority. So the nation, the expression of a majority culture, came to be seen to be past its sell-by date, an anachronism responsible for all the ills of the world, such as racism, prejudice, and war. The remedy was what John Font has called transnational progressivism, the idea that what we must all sign up to crosses national boundaries. So, Laws based on the values, traditions, and histories of particular nations must be replaced by laws and delivery mechanisms that are universal. So, international law trumps the political decisions of sovereign states. Values are imposed by supranational institutions, such as the European Court of Human Rights, the European Union, the UN, or the International Criminal Court. These are the sole uh, vehicles uh, of legitimacy. Law itself indeed, now trumps other forms of human interaction, such as informal relationships based on custom or convention, or at the other end of the scale, defending liberty through war. The view took hold that the application of law would settle all the world's problems and conflicts. It was law that by regulating behavior and attitudes would bring about a new and uplifted universal psyche. Codifying principles to which all civilized people could sign up would, it was thought, eradicate hatred, impose global order, and remove any occasion for war. Now, I would think, I would say also, that the real game changer in all this was the fall of communism. What I'm describing is a process which started well before the fall of the Berlin Wall. I'm describing something which has been going on. I would say, well, I would say for decades, but um, certainly in the last, uh, uh, during this, during, it really got going in the, in, the, in the 70s and 80s. But the fall of communism was very, very important because it changed the way the world worked. It was the end of the balance of terror. It was the end of the doctrine of nuclear deterrence. It was the end of the fear for many people that we were at risk of nuclear immolation. That fear kind of was deemed to go away. 
our wretched security service in Britain disbanded its uh, subversion unit. Subversion was over. Subversion was over. Communism was defeated. There was going to be no more subversion. So all that expertise in decoding subversion vanished. All those experts disappeared. How stupid was that? The fall of the Soviet Union brought about globalization, the blurring of national boundaries. It enabled various liberation movements to come forward because um, groups which had been suppressed by communism suddenly exercised their Muslims, decided they wanted independence. But something else happened too in terms of Western attitudes because the fall of communism had a seismic effect on both right and left. The right said to itself, our fox has been shot. Socialism is over. What do we do now? No idea. What are we for? What are we against? No idea. The left said, my goodness, our champions have collapsed. Socialism is no more. It's imploded. What do we do now? Where are we going to put our idealism? And both right and left became, for a lot of people, interchangeable because everyone now supported the free market. So it was like the end of politics. The left needed a new utopian project. It had to find a new radical motif that would enable it to continue its defining mission to transform both society and human nature. So it turned itself to the far less visible and more slow-burning culture war. Issues to do with family, education, multiculturalism at home, anti-colonialism, anti-racism abroad. Humanitarianism became the norm. We must look after the poor of the world. We must end oppression. We must end world poverty. That's where the left hung its hat. Minorities were always good. Minorities defined as people without power. The majority was always bad. The majority defined as people with power. And so it followed that minorities, those without power, were given a free pass for their behavior. Whatever, however they behaved, they were not responsible because they were victims. And this was applied to the third world. The third world was by definition poor and oppressed because it didn't have power compared with America and the West. And consequently, the third world could do no wrong and America and the West could do no right. This whole theory also was a way of saying that never again would the world be engulfed by war. International law was now the legal instrument to remove the circumstances which would lead to the slaughter of people. International law changed from what was effectively the law relating to the treaties between states, and it became instead something to be imposed by transnational bodies like the UN, and it developed a kind of life of its own. International law became a kind of supreme religion almost that could not be countermanded. But any undergraduate knows international law is kind of fiction. International law is based on no jurisdiction that gives it legitimacy. It's based on no democratic legitimacy. International law should be just the words of treaties. But international law as a general concept to impose upon other countries is a means of oppression because international law is merely politics by other means, imposed by judges who are elected by nobody, and therefore a, 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 a vehicle for imposing actually uh, injustice. 
But nevertheless, the left had this bit between its teeth, and international law was the thing, and that this business of not doing war really, really took hold. You could only do war in a humanitarian cause. So Bosnia, for example, very important to do war to support the Muslims of Bosnia from being slaughtered. That was fine. But the idea of doing war to protect your self-interest, since you were the West and therefore oppressive, was no good. Because the people who, were, uh, you, who you were going to war against were people who were, by definition, powerless. And they could not be guilty of doing anything wrong. And so instead of war, what became elevated to heroic, untouchable status was the idea of negotiation, reconciliation, uh, compromise. So South Africa, Northern Ireland were held up, and they are held up as the great examples. South Africa. Here you have black people who are held down and oppressed. They came to power. What do they do? They eschewed revenge. They didn't go into, into revenge. They didn't take action against their white oppressors. Instead, they did reconciliation. And it was peace and harmony. How wonderful is that? Northern Ireland, the Irish Republican Army, who had spent decades blowing up their Protestant opponents, were brought in by the British government in its wisdom and made into statesmen. They all sat down together around a table. They hammered out a compromise, and now there is peace in Northern Ireland. This is historically imbecilic. Apartheid was not brought to an end by reconciliation. Apartheid was brought to an end principally by the demise of the Soviet Union. We know other factors too, but it was geopolitics that brought that about. Northern Ireland, the Irish Republican Army, only came into the democratic process because they were militarily defeated by the British Army. They were brought to a position where they knew that by terrorism they could never, ever win. And so they made a pragmatic and very intelligent decision to abandon terrorism and to use the democratic process to achieve their ends instead. That is very different from, say, negotiating with the Hamas, which we are being told that we must do because of Northern Ireland, because of South Africa, because the Hamas are still sending the rockets over and killing Israelis. But people don't understand the difference between them. They think that today's terrorist is tomorrow's statesman, and they think that today's statesmen are terrorists. Today's statesmen are terrorists. Once you become a prime minister or president, if you are in the West, then you become a terrorist. There's also no distinction between aggression and defense. In a world which has got rid of morality, people's motivations don't matter. All that matters is the body count. All that matters is the body count. So Israel kills people through self-defense, means nothing to them. All they can see are dead Palestinian children. The Palestinians kill Israelis as a matter of aggression because they wish to murder Israelis. It's all the same. It's all the same. There's no difference. So you have this terrible amorality, no distinction between aggression and defense. Victim and aggressor become interchangeable. And it is the countries that go against these assumptions uh, that are uh, regarded as the real source of danger in the world. 
So the United States, which does stand for freedom and does actually defend itself against aggression or wish, wish to defend itself against aggression, uh, it is seen as committing offenses far worse than those who are truly aggressive against it. So we all remember the outrage over the abuses of Abu Ghraib. I mean, I'm not defending those for a moment. They were abuses. But to suggest, as was done over and over again, that what the Americans did in Abu Ghraib was worse than what Saddam Hussein did in Abu Ghraib is such a monstrous inversion of reality, such a terrible uh, uh, denial of true tyranny and true murderous psychopathic aggression as to be almost unbelievable. But that is what progressive opinion effectively said. America was worse in what it did than what Saddam Hussein had did. Rendition, waterboarding, these are the things that we should be most concerned about and we will ignore what the Arabs are doing to each other, let alone to us, because human rights go only one way. They have them, we destroy them. That's how it goes. So, going back to apartheid, that actually filled the bill for, fitted the bill for um, progressives until uh, uh, Mandela and the ANC came to power in 1994. Apartheid was the cause that where liberals or progressives hung their hats. Apartheid went down tubes, and so the, the Western liberals said, where do we look now? And Israel perfectly fitted the bill several times over. Because according to what I've just been describing, all these great cultural changes that had taken place in the West over these several decades, here you have Israel, which was first of all a nation, bad, because a nation is the expression of majority opinion. Secondly, Israel was a Western nation, very bad, because the West is innately oppressive. Thirdly, Israel was a Western Jewish nation, and therefore racist, and therefore committing the crime of crimes. And it was engaging in military self-defense, which was entirely illegitimate, because it was killing Palestinian civilians. And so it was downed several times over under this doctrine of human rights and progressive values. And that's before you even start on the impact on the Western psyche of Arab propaganda. And what you also have is a situation where this idea that war is replaced by law, it leads directly to lies and injustice. Because of this, Law to, war to law means, as I've said, that instead of making war, you make peace processes. You have negotiation, you have compromise. And that's considered axiomatically wonderful. Because it's considered axiomatically wonderful, nothing must derail a peace process. Nothing. The peace process is sacrosanct. So, here is Mahmoud Abbas, who says, never will the Palestinian people ever accept Israel has the right to exist as a Jewish state. It's a declaration of unending war, unending war. And at the same time, he is turning a blind eye to, or even sending out the Fatah, uh, the Tamzin Brigade, whatever they're called, to murder Israelis. And he is inciting his people to hatred of Jews and murder of Israelis. None of that can be even looked at, let alone admitted, because that might stop the peace process. That might actually get in the way of negotiation and compromise. That might actually mean that Israel doesn't have to make the compromises. So 
You can't even admit that. So you end up telling lies immediately about the true sources of hostility and aggression. And the result is that because you're sanitizing the true sources of hostility and aggression, the people who are defending themselves against this, who say, how can we negotiate with this when they're trying to kill us, those are the people you blame. Because they're the people who might stop the peace process. Because the peace process is sacrosanct. That is what war to law has done. Instead of making a better, more humane, more civilized world, it means that there is, we are rendered powerless, effectively, in trying to defend ourselves against murderous aggression. That is what human rights doctrine, international law, the doctrine that war must be replaced by law, has done. And then you come to the current madness of the foreign policy of the United Kingdom, the United States of America, and Europe. I've called it Leningland. It was originally a play on England. It became Leningland. But I now have to include the United States as well um, under President Obama. So I'm not quite sure whether Leningland quite works as a pun. But anyway, you can see the general point that I'm making. Um, the West is going over, as it were, the cliff. Um, the madness of anti-Israel prejudice that preoccupies us through the BDS movement, through the delegitimization of Israel, is reflected in the approach of Israel's alleged allies, not just to Israel itself, but to the region. You have what I would consider to be, and what the title of my talk is, um, the political equivalent of autoimmune disease, treating the mortal enemies of the West as the victims of the West, while treating the West's defenders as its mortal enemies. It has many dimensions. Consider. Israel. Israel is supposed to be the ally of the United Kingdom and the West and Europe. Uh, the leaders of these uh, three countries and certain sets of nations swear all the time that Israel is their friend, their ally, they have Israel's back, and all the rest of it. But simultaneously, they do everything they can to stop Israel defending itself. This is mind-bending stuff. They are friends and enemies simultaneously. Simultaneously. The United Kingdom tells lies about Israel. No question. It says the settlements are illegal. It says Israel is still occupying Gaza. Hello. It took the lead. Britain took the lead in persuading the EU to label these goods made in the disputed territories. Both the United Kingdom and the United States give the PA, the Palestinian Authority, a free pass, as I've just been saying, but blame Israel for jeopardizing the Middle Eastern settlement. We see Mr. Kerry threatening Israel that if Israel continues to prevent the peace process from achieving peace, then Israel will be subjected to boycott divestment and sanctions, threatening the victim of aggression. Not so much, this is, I would suggest, is not so much BDS as BS. Because <laughs> these boycotts are not materializing. Um, um, and the only effect is that it's poisoning uh, not just non-Jewish minds, but Jewish minds as well. This blaming the victim and sanitizing aggression treating as allies and enemies has more than a whiff of outright malice in it. But when you look at the behavior of the United States and the United Kingdom in the rest of the region, it becomes clear they're acting not just against Israel, but against their own interests and against the interests of all kinds of other people. 
At every juncture, they got the Arab Spring wrong. They thought it was the new dawn of democracy and human rights. They never understood that the toppling of bad men who were bad, but useful to or contained by the West, they never thought that the toppling of those bad men would produce worse men bent on destroying the West. This never occurred to them. So in Libya, we see this chaos that's been produced by the removal of Gaddafi. Uh, chaos, the rise of jihadi groups, weapons, caches gone missing, weapons, caches that are going to be used against us, against America, against Britain, against Europe, weapons being reportedly smuggled from Libya to the Hamas. In Egypt, President Mubarak was replaced with the acquiescence and, 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 and encouragement of uh, Obama, uh, replaced by a Muslim Brotherhood placement the Brotherhood whose fanaticism repelled Egyptians to such an extent that millions of Egyptians took to the streets denouncing Obama, denouncing Obama who had hymned the arrival of democracy and human rights by the toppling of Mubarak. The Egyptians took to the streets and burned Obama's picture because what he had brought about was, as they could see, a descent of Egypt into tyranny in which they would lose what human rights they had previously had. And what they wanted was what we they now have, which is a strong man to keep the Brotherhood down, precisely the opposite of what Obama wanted to happen. And of course, the negotiation with Iran is, I would suggest, the most egregious example of empowering the mortal enemies of the West. Forget Israel for a minute. Iran. Iran has been at war with the West since 1979. Since that time, it has killed countless Americans, and people involved in Western interest, it's been providing, it provided the land, the, 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 the devices for blowing up American soldiers in uh, Iraq, in Afghanistan, British soldiers. It has been at war with the West for all these years, and yet, even though it continues to announce almost daily its intention to defeat the West, its intention to continue this war, America is not only negotiating with it, it's become its new best friend. The West believes that the new president, Rouhani, is a moderate. Uh, the fact that Rouhani doesn't matter, the only person who matters in Iran is the supreme leader, Khamenei. This is simply, this, is, this seems to be something which the leaders of America and Britain just don't understand. The fact that Rouhani has a history of tricking the West, which he's boasted about, and quite clearly he's played the same trick again. It's not even a trick. We can all see that the deal that was made in Geneva is transparently worthless. You only really have to look at it to see that what Iran says is true. The West has allowed us, in terms, to continue with our nuclear program. They're correct. They're correct. The thing that the West said was unconscionable, they have given to Iran. Why? How can this possibly have happened? Well, I can only suggest some, some, some explanations. Ig ignorance, certainly. Ignorance of, 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 the, of the situation in the Middle East. Ignorance of, of history. Ignorance of uh, the Iranians. Arrogance, this belief that the, not belief, this, this assumption that the West has that everyone basically thinks like the West. And so this refusal to believe that other 
cultures may think quite differently and have a completely different set of premises. This is beyond the West. They can't think like that because everyone must be like the West. This is a cultural arrogance. This is true cultural colonialism. And funk, it's much easier to pretend that everything is going to be okay than to face the fact that, you know, it's going to be war. It is war. It is war. Much easier to pretend that it's not. And also, you have this terrible arrogance of divide and rule. This idea that, you know, you have enemies of the West, you divide them. You have less bad enemies. So the Muslim Brotherhood, it gave rise to Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda is very bad, it's up the Twin Towers. But you can have good brotherhood. You can have reasonable brotherhood. So we'll bring on the reasonable brotherhood against the Al-Qaeda's. And we'll bring on the brotherhood as a whole against Iran. And we're so clever. Because we invented this, because we're British, and this is how we ran the empire. We divided and ruled. We used the natives against each other. And this is the result. You have the Egyptians taken to the streets to throw out the Brotherhood. You have all these people empowered. You have Iran now empowered in the region. You have Saudi Arabia turning against the West because it has lost faith in America to do what needed to be done. I mean, this is simple madness. But there are also deeper cultural reasons, encapsulated, I would suggest, by President Obama. And I bring my remarks to a, conclu a conclusion uh, by, by trying to bring all this together. What I've been describing in terms of what Western culture has been doing to itself is Western culture turning on itself, undermining its own core values, and replacing them by values previously thought to be transgressive or destructive, replacing truth by ideology, replacing the idea of a nation by rival groups jostling for power, replacing morality by amorality, and I would suggest nihilism uh, expressed in various ways. And behind all of that, as I've tried to suggest, is the idea that the Western nation, based on the shared culture of tradition, law, history, language, religion, is somehow legitimate and needs to be remade altogether. And this is very, very pronounced in Europe, in Britain, you have the kind of guilt, the historical guilt of an empire. In, the, in, in mainland continental Europe, you have the guilt over the Holocaust. You have a collective guilt and a, an undermining of not just the nation, but the very idea of Western progress. I mean, the Holocaust had this terrible, terrible effect on Europe. You know, the Holocaust came from the cradle of Western civilization. It came among, you know, from people who, 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 who venerated Mozart and Goethe and were cultured, it was, the, it was the epicenter of reason, and it produced that. And this has demoralized, I would suggest, the West to a very great degree, which is not properly understood. Um, and it's, 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 it's based in, in, in Europe. Now, President Obama has taken this one stage further, because President Obama is, as I, as I read him, as I've always read him, he is somebody who, uh, he, 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 he encapsulates uh, uh, these ideas of the left. He takes them one stage further. He takes them one stage further. He's not just a leftist. My reading of President Obama is that everything to do with him as I, that I've read, his history, his youth, his young manhood, his friends, his associates, it's all one story. It's all one story. It's an animus against white society. I'm afraid to say it, but it's an animus against white society for keeping down the black person. And this is his revenge. This is, this is what he's doing. 
he has decided that America is basically the vehicle for this terrible oppression of black people, of minorities, and that has to stop. That has to stop. American hegemony over the world has to stop. And instead, the victims of America have to be empowered. And that's exactly what he has done. And he has been able to get away with it because of American guilt over race, because of America's terrible history of race, of, of, of racism against black people, which is a terrible history and it's very recent. And I believe that that has paralyzed America, paralyzed it and made it unable to see this man for what he is. And he's been able to get away with it to the wider world because of all the things I've been talking about, that European civilization, Western civilization, had this tremendous crisis of confidence in itself, in the nation, and in the project of modernity itself. And so that's why I call it an autoimmune disease. An autoimmune disease, in medical terms, is caused, as I understand it, by a failure of the central nervous system. And this political autoimmune disease of the West, I would suggest, is caused not by a failure of the central nervous system, but by a failure of nerve, cultural nerve. It is an astonishing situation. It's almost unbelievable, but we have to believe it. It's a situation brought about by cultural exhaustion, guilt, moral exhaustion. Our focus in this kind of environment, this kind of meeting, our focus is understandably on the threat posed specifically to Israel by the bewildering bigotry that we can see expressed in the BDS movement and in the wider delegitimization uh, movement against Israel. But the real threat, the real threat is not to Israel. The real threat is much, much bigger. The real threat that we're facing is to the West, to America, to the United Kingdom, and to Europe. The West's enemies understand this very, very well. They understand that the West cannot understand this. They understand the West's weakness. They understand that the West no longer has a sense of purpose because it's lost belief in what it is, but they have a sense of purpose. They have a sense of purpose infused by religious belief. They are doing God's work. But this is the paradox. This is the paradox. Because this Islamic world that is infused by this sense of purpose, this jihadi fanaticism, this Islamic world is extreme because it feels itself under threat from modernity. The essence of its extremism is that it understands that modernity is coming at it through the internet, through social media, through the globalization movement. Its women are at risk of believing that they have a future of freedom. They understand that that is something they have to stop. And that is what they're trying to do. They are trying to stop modernity. It is essentially a defensive movement because they understand, at some level, they understand their culture is dying. And it's true. It is dying. However, the paradox is that it's like a sort of dying dragon. As its tail thrashes in its death throes, it can kill us unless we actually understand what it is and fight it. And we can only fight it by rediscovering our own core values. So this is the terrible paradox and problem that we face in the West. But my final concluding thought is this. You have two civilizations, as it were, in a kind of terrible spiral of decline and death row. 
fighting each other or not fighting each other in the way that I've been describing. But there is, meanwhile, one place in the world, one place which is powering ahead economically, full of confidence, upholding Western ideals of freedom, and expressing its own faith in the future by having lots and lots of babies mm. while everyone else is demographically going down the tubes, this place is producing babies as if there are plenty of tomorrows. <laughs> what place is that? Israel. 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 The most vilified and beleaguered nation on the planet is the one place in the world where there is actually hope. And I would suggest that maybe that is why the BDS movement and the delegitimizers are so furious because they're jealous, they can see that is something that they would dearly love to have and they do not. So thank you very much uh, for your uh, insightful analysis and brave analysis and your voice is very needed. So thank you for this. Um, I'm going to ask one, one quick question. So, your analysis is uh, profound. What do we do? <laughs> what can we do? What can we do in small institutes, in intellectuals, people in the media? What do we do given the, the situation of predicament, the profound predicament? Uh, we have to do the only thing we can do, which is keep on keeping on. Um, uh, we must not give up. We have a duty to speak. Um, Jews have a duty to record uh, what's happening. Um, this is you know, one of the duties of, of Jews throughout the ages. You record what's happening, even regardless of the effect of recording it, you record it. You record it. But I believe there is an effect. I believe that eventually truth does drive out lies. The problem is that these truths are very difficult to say because circumstances conspire against us. Charles has experienced this. I've experienced it. Many of us experience it. You take your professional life in your hands to say this. And the way is barred. Um, the media make every attempt to stifle this kind of, of, of uh, discourse. So we have to be more creative. We have to find ways of doing it. Um, uh, we have to be more focused. Um, it would be a great help if the State of Israel were to get up off its knees and start helping us do this, because they don't do this at all. Um, they, uh, for various reasons, they, their, their voice in all this is very muted. Um, and we just have to keep on finding more and more creative ways of bringing these truths out. More of us have to start being much more forensic in what we're saying, and by which I mean we have to be producing evidence the whole time, but on the basis that a lot of people out there are decent people who simply don't know the true facts. But it's a way of gaining attention, uh, but also it's a very effective means of counter-propaganda to go onto the front foot rather than the back foot, and I think this really can't be emphasized enough. Um, a lot of our community, for very understandable reasons, behaves in a very defensive way. Faced with these terrible calumnies against Israel, the, re the normal reaction is to say, it's not true. We are not like that. 
we're actually the victims here. Why can't you see that? But this is all defensive. And that's before you get onto the whole business of Jews supporting the two-state solution, which I think is expressed in a way which almost inevitably gives the argument to the enemies of Israel. But that's another matter. We are basically very defensive. We have to go onto the attack. We have to actually understand something which I think few of us, too few of us do understand, which is that we really do have arguments on our side which are based in law, justice, and human rights, and that the other side are denying them. So instead of defending ourselves by saying, actually, we're the good guys, please don't, please don't hurt us, we're the good guys, why can't you see it? We have to say, you're a really bad guy. You, Mr. and Mrs. Progressive Person, are racists, and this is why you're racist. You are supporting racist ethnic cleansing in a future state of Palestine. Not one Jew will be allowed to live there. Not one Israeli will be allowed to live there. How can you support this? It's that. It's that. How can you support the denial of, inter of, 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 of international law? You're so keen on international law. How can you, British government, support? How can you, how can you British government, deny? Um, uh, how, how, how can you, how can you um, uh, justify the fact that you yourselves uh, were responsible for denying international law um, over the years in, uh, and, 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 and today, in denying the legal right of Jews to be settled in the land of Israel, as defined in 1922 in an instrument of international law which has never been countermanded. And here are the, here are the legal justifications for that. We don't say that. We don't put them on the back foot. And I think that's it's a, sort of a, a sort of strategic change that we all have to make. Because the, thing, the insight that we all have to understand the thing we all have to understand is this, that the progressive person who is doing such terrible damage and telling these terrible lies, the progressive person is not animated by concern for the people that they can say that they are concerned about. They do not care that Arabs are killing Arabs. Quite, quite obviously they don't care. They don't care about the denial of human rights anywhere. They don't care about the actual circumstances of the people that they say are being oppressed. <coughs> what they care about is their own reputation and their own image of themselves as nice people. And that's the Achilles heel. One has to say to them, by your own definition, you are not a nice person. You are a bad person. You are racist. You are oppressive. You are culturally a colonialist. You are arrogant. And all these things. It's all perfectly true. And believe me, once you start going down that road, the reaction is very, very interesting because they can't cope with it. That's how they, they because their whole, their whole belief system, their whole political belief system, their whole sense of themselves is based on this fiction they've established that by speaking in this way, they become nice people. And if you say by speaking in this way, you are actually supporting this genocidal lunatic, this person, this leader who is doing these things to his own people, these are the people you are supporting. How can you be a, how can you possibly claim to be progressive when you are supporting tyranny? On the back foot, they have to be on the back foot, we have to get off the back foot, onto the front foot. Instead of making the case, we say peace. We don't, we don't make the case, that's why we're saying peace. My question is this. Um, the, uh, you're talking a lot about 
your analysis is brilliant. I compliment you. Talking about a lot about political correctness. Political correctness <laughs> came about in the United States in the 60s with the revolution uh, the, uh, against the Western white Christian, yep. Judeo-Christian male. How did it come about in uh, Europe, in England? When? And what, what, was the, what were the forces that brought it about there? Well, a lot of the rubbish. Oh yes, a lot of the forces that brought about political correctness in Europe, uh, because in America it came about through reaction against the white European, the the, 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 the white American male. Um, it was basically um, a reaction against the white American male in Europe. Um, a lot of these ideas um, in Britain, I don't wish to cause offence, but a lot of these ideas in Britain that have, or Europe that have uh, pulverised Britain came from America including educational theories. I mean, you know, John Dewey has a lot to answer for. America exported all this rubbish to Europe. Um, <laughs> uh, it, came over, it came over in waves, including uh, in the 60s. Um, it sort of bypassed America slightly and hopped over the channel, um, because, uh, over the Atlantic, um, because Britain was culturally really very vulnerable. Loss of empire, loss of role, etc. Loss of religion. That's something America doesn't have. This loss of religion. Um, it was vulnerable to ideas which then really took root. Um, so you know, but there's interchangeability. I mean, Britain has exported a lot of rubbish to America as well. The English-speaking world is like a sort of malicious or malevolent feedback loop. You know, it exports to itself, and then it it sort of. It it, 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 feeds, it feeds on itself. In Britain, the loss of religion has been a very, very great uh, uh, contributory factor. Um, uh, you know, in, in America, you've had, you have cultural wars. They're called cultural wars. Um, it's basically those who uphold biblical morality against the rest. In Britain, there's no cultural war. It's been a complete walkover uh, because the culture just collapsed because Religion plays a very different has has a very different trajectory in Britain because of the Church of England. We'll go into that in great detail on another occasion. Um, so these are, this is a great difference. But um, this great weariness with modernity is also what lies at the, at, the, at the heart of it, and it takes many forms. It takes the form of you know the weariness with or the 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 the, the, the the uh, uh, repudiation of Western Western um, dominance. Um, uh, it, it, you know, capitalism is evil. Is a repudiation of modernity. Um, environmentalism, absolutely. Back to the Middle Ages. If only it wasn't, you know, for the motor car and uh, the number of people in the world, everything would be fine. It's 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 all to do with. Repudiating modernity, repudiating capitalism, repudiating the West. These are all these things are all mixed up together. Um, and um, Brit I mean, America has been to a large extent protected from this. The worst successes of this by the fact that so many of its people are still very religious. They're religious Christians, um, and that's been and that's been the, the bulwark of the the support for Israel in America comes from those people. It's no coincidence. And those people are, you know, resisting, are, are in the resistance side of the cultural wars. As I say, in Europe, that's not been the case. Uh, mainland Europe is different again from America, from, from, from Britain. Britain is, is very, very secular, very, very anti-religious. 
uh, it didn't have the Catholic Church, it had the Church of England. These things matter, these, these, these things make a difference. It's, it's a very complicated picture, but the short answer is that the kind of stuff that you have in America is in Britain as well. So we have about only five minutes or so, and then there'll be a book signing afterwards, so perhaps I'll collect a couple of questions here and then a couple of questions on this side. Briefly, please. Susie Rosen. Um, when you when you were talking about the um, you were talking about the fact that you can turn it on people. One of the things that it would seem to me is that, and I'd like you to comment on it, is that it really doesn't seem to matter very much who is getting killed. It matters much more who is doing the killing. Arabs being killed by Arabs doesn't seem to affect anybody. Arabs killed by Jews and Westerners makes a great deal of difference. And I think what you were saying about the religion, we've just been experiencing very recently now. Um, the Presbyterian Church has decided to take a very definitive stand against Zionism, whether it's Christians believing Jews should go back to Israel or Jews believing it, and they are turning Zionism itself into a sin, and, they have, and it's been described that way. Uh, the Wiesenthal Institute has suggested that um, Jews who have been involved in interfaith forums no longer refuse to do it if anybody from the Presbyterian Church is involved. What would you say about that? Well, there are two separate points this lady's making. One is um, that uh, to the progressive mind, it doesn't matter who is being killed, the question is who is doing the killing. Uh, I think that's absolutely right. Um, they're not concerned with the victims, they're concerned with demonizing the people who are doing the killing um, if they are of the West. That's what I was saying before, you can't be held responsible for killing people if you come from a victim class, which is basically the third world. He's also making the point about the Presbyterian Church um, demonizing not just Israel, but Zionism, and making Zionism a sin. And this is, um, I, I can't speak to the Presbyterian Church specifically, but I do know that progressive churches and increasingly also among evangelicals who were hitherto the staunch, you know, the absolute absolutely rock solid body of support for Israel, the evangelical churches are increasingly becoming uh, divided on, on this issue. And it's, it's, it's very much bound up with Christian theology. Um, the, uh, uh, the, the kind of progressive left-wing project of demonizing Israel has become fused um, in these progressive Christian circles uh, with the ancient theological uh, Christian calumny of replacement theology, sometimes called supersessionism, uh, which is the old um, heresy going back to the early church fathers that the Jews forfeited the love of God by, divine, by, by denying the divinity of Christ. And as a result, all God's promises to the Jews were devolved onto the Christians, and the Jews became the party of the devil. And that uh, heresy uh, gave rise to the persecution of the Jews by Christians in the Middle Ages. It went underground at the Holocaust for obvious reasons and has now surfaced thanks to Palestinian Christians uh, based in East Jerusalem, the Sabeel Center particularly, um, formulating a kind of uh, fusion of uh, ancient replacement theology with Palestinian, uh, uh, Palestinianism so that uh, basically um, Jesus became Jesus becomes a Palestinian, as Mahmoud Abbas said 
uh, recently, and everybody was amazed, but in fact this has been said over and over again, Jesus was Palestinian, um, and uh, the Palestinians are, are depicted in this, in, this, uh, in this kind of iconography of Palestinian supersessionism. The Palestinians are depicted in terms which are deliberately um, suggestive of the crucifixion and of the, of, of, of the various stages of the Passion of Christ um, in order to fuse it. And the Church of England has bought this hook, line, and sinker, fallen for it hook, line, and sinker, um, and it's it's a it's a terrible thing. But now you know in churches up and down the land in Britain, you have um, basic Jew hatred being uh, being preached in sermons. Um, I mean the church I showed you earlier, St James's Church is one example of this. Um, but there's more. There are more specific. There there are more. Um, uh, um, uh, uh, there are clear examples of this fusion. Uh, there was a. Um, um, a very popular um, model, uh, nativity scene, um, uh, that uh, a, 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 a sculptural tableau, which churches could um, were, uh, were, were exhibiting uh, at Christmas time. You could buy it uh, from the Amos Trust online, and it was a model of a manger, traditional manger, crib, baby, animals, sheep, three wise men, traditional scene, straw, and down the middle of the manger is a wall. That's the tableau that churches were distributing, were, were, were displaying up and down the country. Fears, fears, even by online. Amos Trust. So I'm going to be a bit authoritarian. So we're, I'm going to collect very quick questions. So really, like quick questions. And this is a quick question. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, no, I'm going to collect them. So oh, really? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you want to go into this, but it, I have heard that Rabbi Sachs did not do enough. Uh, to diffuse the situation. Oh, you won't hear a word of criticism from me about my sex. <laughs> okay. Next question, very quickly. Uh, I have two questions. One question, quickly. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, they're related. Uh, I didn't understand something you said uh, during the lecture. I, I understood everything else and I liked it, but uh, I didn't understand why is the fall of apartheid in South Africa, how was it caused by the fall of the Soviet Union? I didn't understand that. And another uh, related question uh, is, uh, the English liberals were in love with uh, communism throughout all the years of communism, right? Uh, while knowing the what Stalinism did, right? So how can you one expect? I mean, it's kind of yeah, 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 yeah. so yeah, how yeah. can one expect okay. them not to? Okay, how was the fall? Of, how was the how was a, sorry? How was the ending of apartheid caused by the fall of communism? As I said, it was a more complicated picture than that, but. In my view, a very significant factor was the fall of communism, as uh, de Klerk has said, because with the fall of communism, the specter of um, black Africa, of, of black African um, uh, rule in South Africa becoming a communist, making it a communist country disappeared. They were very frightened that the ANC was a communist front. Okay. Um, and that, that specter disappeared. Uh, sorry, what was your second question? Oh, yes, the, how the, 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 the uh, progressive left always supported Stalin, so one can't really be surprised that they're supporting all this nonsense now. That's absolutely correct. Um, and, um, uh, you know, the psychology of the progressive left needs, you know, you need a psychiatrist to understand it, but, it's, but they're basically always concerned with power um, and with, you know, suppression. And uh, the end of Stalin, um, well, the end of, they, they supported Stalin 
uh, because they support an ideal in their heads which is inimical to uh, evidence. Um, and they build their entire personality, their political personality around that ideal. And it's only when the ideal itself crashes to the ground that they then turn somewhere else. So I agree, that is a problem. But many of the people who are supporting this terrible movement against Israel are not the left. They're not ideologues. It's led by the left. But many people are just ignorant. And they, they are reading and tapping into the culture that's dominated by the left. And they're not being told anything else. Those are the people that we can get at. There are certain people you can't get at, but there are many, many others you can get at because they are not ideologues, they're simply sheep. So I, I'm, I'm very sorry, we have to leave the room. Before we leave, uh, one of the things we do is outside Melanie is going to sign books, and a very important book is outside for sale at a very reduced price. Um, okay, and on behalf of this guy, well, thank you very much for speaking, and I think you're a great and successful.